welcome to the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I am your host, Kevin, recording safe and sound from my quarantine bunker. I hope wherever you are across the globe that you are safe and healthy as we go through uh, this coronavirus pandemic. Well, today I want to give you an inspirational episode to help lift your spirits. We are all well familiar with the massive deployment of troops on the beaches of Normandy on June 6, 1944, but we are less familiar with the two years' worth of groundwork laid behind enemy lines to ensure that the D-Day invasion would be a success. My guest today is Sarah Rose, author of D-Day Girls, the spies who armed the resistance, sabotaged the Nazis, and helped win World War II. And she joins me to discuss the brave women who parachuted into Nazi-occupied France to work undercover as armed smugglers, army recruiters, and saboteurs. Sarah is a news and travel journalist whose columns have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Travel and Leisure Magazine, and the Saturday Evening Post. She joins me from Hawaii via Skype to discuss her second best-selling history book, D-Day Girls. Let's get into today's show. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique Hello Sarah, welcome to the podcast Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you are calling us from Hawaii, I believe? I am. Uh, probably a little bit better than Ohio, weather-wise. This time of year, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, if you would be so kind, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, my understanding is uh, you're a travel writer who's... Um, decided to take a couple trips into history. Yes, that's right. I'm a journalist and I'm an author. And I've written two books, uh, narrative nonfiction histories of very different places, one about China and my most recent one about occupied France. And the women who parachuted in uh, ahead of D-Day to arm and train the French resistance. Uh, so So what inspired you to decide to write history? To write history, um, in a way, I never think of history being that different than comp- contemporaneous reporting. You know, our job is to sort of go deep and long and try and find the stories behind the stories and have it come up with a narrative that makes sense, that explains something about the world today. It's history. You just use sources that are older. All right, well, the book that you wrote that we're going to talk about today is called D-Day Girls, and um, it was, it was uh, I mean, it was informative, and I enjoyed it, and it was just all around fun. Um, how did you uh, discover these women? So I'm interested in women in male spaces. How do women behave when they are surrounded entirely by men? And the military is pretty much the most male space I could imagine. Um, And I knew that, you know, we were getting to a point where our armed forces, American armed forces, were going to be fully integrated. Uh, There's no combat role now that a woman cannot have if she can meet the qualifications for it. And so I started looking into this and the women I met were 
they, they defied my expectations. I thought I'd get these sort of junior men like G.I. James. And instead, they were very feminine and they were deeply credentialed and they went to war as women, not as women dressed up as men or women acting like men. So I wanted to know, you know, who was the first woman in combat? And I assumed I would find an Iraq or an Afghanistan story or maybe even Vietnam. And it turns out that the very first women in combat were this group of 39 women in World War II France who were doing everything a soldier was doing. They were parachuting in. They were combat paratroopers. They were sabotage agents. And they were in command of troops on D-Day. Definitely something you you wouldn't expect. And these women were part of a unit uh, called the Special Operations Executive. Uh, Can you tell us what that was? And and what was this idea that Winston Churchill had of ungentlemanly warfare? (laughs) Sure. So if I take you back to spring of 1940 and after Dunkirk, there's not an allied boot left on the continent. There's not an allied soldier. There's not a democracy really left in Europe. Hitler and fascism has everything from the Russian border down to the Spanish border. And it's a hopeless moment, a deeply hopeless moment in Europe. Britain is last hope island. It's the last democracy left. And so Churchill, who's just taken over as head of government and just taken over as head of the war office, has this idea, a kind of, well, you know, it can't hurt to try what else have we got idea. And that is the notion that people who are occupied by Hitler don't like it. They are angry. They don't want to be under the boot of fascism. And if he could harness that anger, if he could sort of organize it, then he could create an underground army that would be there ready to detonate and sort of rise up behind enemy lines when the Allies returned, recognizing that he had no idea if the Allies would return. But if anything like that could happen, he might as well try. Like, there was nothing to lose. He just had to get people behind enemy lines to organize this resistance, to train them into a fighting force, and then to get guns into their hand. And that's how the SOE was, the Special Operations Executive Uh, sort of was created. It was just, how can we organize guerrilla warfare? And it's not like guerrilla warfare was new under the sun. Um, It wasn't new at all. Churchill himself had dealt with the IRA. Uh, But it was the first time a government had said, let's mechanize this, systematize it, operationalize it, make it part of our war plans. And and it worked. So when the uh, SOE... um first introduced this idea of let's let's recruit women how did that go over i i can't imagine that the the military brass at the time uh, that that sat well with them no one was excited to recruit women i mean there is every really every culture on earth has a has a combat taboo that says that women don't belong in combat and and children don't belong in combat. So this violates a kind of almost basic human instinct to put women in harm's way. And and that war is fought for women and children, not by women. So it was really challenging just on a cultural level like that. And then, yeah, these were a bunch of Edwardians, you know, people who'd grown up in the Victorian era. They were traditionalists. This was a terrible plan, according to most people. But in 1942, when these women were recruited, pretty much every able-bodied man was already at war. 
And what they needed was they needed French speakers, like native French speakers, habitualized French people, somebody who could drop behind enemy lines and act French, fooling not just the French, but the Germans. And, and so it had to be a French speaker. And there were very few left by the time 1942 gets around and they're recruiting for the SOE. And on top of all that, General de Gaulle wouldn't allow French citizens to do this work for the Allies. He didn't want French citizens or answering the British command. He thought that would sort of make France a colony of England if and when the war ended. So they had a manpower shortage. They solved with women power. And no one wanted to do it. No one wanted to sign those orders. It went all the way up the line to Winston Churchill, who said, absolutely, yes. Um, so, so you talk about a, a lot of individuals in, in the book, um, but you focus around three main characters. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, about um, the three that you, you picked the focus on and, and what were their backgrounds and how were they recruited by the SOE? Sure. So the first was a woman named Odette Sampson, and she's a 30-year-old mother, effectively a single mother. Her husband has been recruited uh, for the war effort. And they find her because she, almost by accident, they were crowdsourcing pictures of the Normandy beaches. And a BBC announcement went out on the radio and they said, if you have pictures from family vacations, holidays, we need them. They were trying to put together an image of what the Normandy beaches would look like from, from the height of an incoming landing craft, right? From the, if you were sailing there. And the best way I to thought do this that part was, was to get... absolutely fascinating that they did this. Absolutely. No, it's so cool. I mean, it was genuinely crowdsourcing. So Odette grew up in France, sends her family photo albums to the wrong place because she's a native French speaker. She doesn't send them to the Navy. She sends them to the war office. And her sort of act of patriotism and volunteerism gets her name forwarded down uh, kind of opaque government channels to the recruitment officer at SOE who says, hey, want to leave your kids behind? And she, she jumps at the chance. Not, not because she is an indifferent mother, but she frames it as a kind of maternal question. Um, with all of Europe gone to fascism, and if England falls, what happens to my daughters? What happens to my very little girls? Shouldn't I, as a mother, do everything I can to change that? And I seem to have this unique skill that no one else has. I, I would be wrong on behalf of my kids to not accept. And so Odette leaves her girls behind. She puts them in a convent school, and uh, she is one of the very first women trained. In her class is another woman named Lise de Basak, and she considered herself French. She was uh, actually a colonial. She grew up in Mauritius, which is a an island off the coast of Africa. It's a coaling stop on the way to the Far East. And it, Britain took it in the Napoleonic Wars. So French speaking, but British passport. When Hitler marches into Paris in June of 1940, she becomes an enemy alien and she has to leave immediately. She never considered herself anything other than a Parisian. So she gets out of France by way of going into the unoccupied zone and then through uh, Spain and then Gibraltar and back to London. She ends up in this foreign country. She has no affiliation 
no, no real love for London. And someone says, hey, you know, your brother's been recruited into this uh, agency. How about you? Would you consider it? And Lise is a very common sense person. She was 38 years old. She said, of course I'll do it. You know, why wouldn't I? Couldn't come up with a reason not to. Didn't flinch at the danger of it. Anything I can do to make France French again, she said. And she she really amazed me because I knew about this group of women and I'd been studying them for a long time. And as I was reading through her file, I realized, hang on, she was actually the number two in command of the French resistance in Normandy during the D-Day invasion, that she had a much bigger role than anyone had ever given women credit for. Number two, her brother was number one. They worked together and she really helped impact the end of the war and getting Patton's army through Brittany and France. So she'd been lost to history. Um, the third woman who is uh, who jumped with Lee's, so Lee's parachutes in. She's about two seconds behind the very first combat paratrooper, a woman named Andre Burrell. And Andre was 22. She was pretty uneducated, um, kind of a scrappy, lower-class Parisian who had been working on an underground railroad, uh, getting fallen Allied pilots out of enemy territory over the mountains again through Gibraltar and back to London because uh, the war at this point is only being fought from the sky. We don't have soldiers. We don't have armies on the ground. So it's an only a, an air war, really, over Europe. The pilots were the most important people, most important troops we had. If someone goes down and survives that crash, you want them out and you want them flying again. So Andre helped shepherd these fallen pilots out of France back to Britain, and then she got caught or got, was about her organization uh, gets blown. And she has to leave. She starts to otherwise endanger the cause. She gets to London, barely speaks English, and they say, hey, you know, you want to you wanna join up? And she immediately says, send me back in. She becomes the very first female combat paratrooper ever. And she'll be assigned to Paris, which is the hub of the Northern Resistance, the sort of communication center where all the radios are and where all the organization comes from, seeds, the resistance units that are going to all along the north of France, all along the Normandy coast, all along the Brittany coast. We don't know in 1942, when she gets there, where D-Day is going to land. But we know it'll be on the Channel Coast somewhere. Andre was the one who began, who seeded and began to recruit all of those resistance circuits all along the coast. So, uh, you know, any perception people might have of, of women, you know, being limited to nursing or secretarial work during the, the war, um, that's completely off base in this case. It absolutely is. And it, it's not even just these 39 women. I mean, it's off base for the entire war. If you were to pick one thing, like one thing the Allies did that changed the course of history, that made it possible for us to defeat Hitler, we a good argument could be made that a, decoding the Enigma code, right, decrypting it, the Operation Ultra, this was the turning point. It meant that we could anticipate where Hitler's subs were going. And we could get our convoys across the Atlantic. Prior to uh, Ultra, we couldn't. 
And that is work that was done overwhelmingly by women. 80% of the workforce at Bletchley was female. I mean, you could make the case that women won the war. They were essential to the single thing that made the difference. So we haven't been telling the story right because we've written women out completely as clerks and as secretaries when, in fact, they were coders building the first computer really ever. So I wanted to take a short break from our interview with Sarah Rose to confess something to you. Um, I have a serious coffee problem. Um, One of the joys of life is having really good coffee. And one of the problems with being in quarantine with everything shut down is there's not a lot of really good coffee to be had. Uh, I was doing all right. The local coffee house um, near my house that I like to walk to um, was open and doing uh, curbside takeout uh, for a while, but they uh, uh, unfortunately closed their doors for a while. Um, So the alternative is coffee at home, and I wanted to tell you about an awesome uh, home delivery coffee roaster called Phil and Sebastian's up in Calgary, Canada. Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters employs a team of coffee experts who work in 100% direct trade coffee. Their expertise has been featured in the New York Times, Lonely Planet's Global Coffee Guide, and CBC News Network. They have a subscription service that ships free to anywhere in the USA or Canada, and they allow you to build your own coffee profile. You can decide whether you like brighter, lighter, fruity coffees, or darker, sweeter, bolder coffees, Uh, or you can leave it up to them and just go with Roaster's Choice. But you can get excellent coffee shop quality coffee delivered to your home on a monthly basis. If you'd like to check out Phil and Sebastian Coffee Roasters, check out the link I've provided for you in the description of this episode in your podcast app. Now let's get back to talking to Sarah Rose about her book, D-Day Girls. Coders building the first computer really ever. Right, right. Um, um, a book club I'm a part of just, just did a, a book on the Bletchley Park, and, that, and that's another fascinating story of, of women in, uh, uh, in service in World War II that, um, y- yeah, like you said, is completely, has completely been overlooked. Women won the war. I mean, if you, if you follow my argument, other people will make other arguments, and there are lots of arguments to be made, but... To write them out completely or dismiss them as just secretaries, just couriers, uh, does a disservice not just to women. We're not looking for like participation trophies. It actually doesn't render the full picture of the war. So uh, not to take a little detour, but, but we're going to. Uh, there's one other woman that you mentioned, and her, and her story I thought was just great. Um, something about her family cat was killed in the London Blitz. And this turned her into a saboteur. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, So Yvonne Rudela, she was a divorcee. She's about to become a grandmother. She's in her 50s. And her house was leveled in the Blitz. And everybody survived except the family cat, Bones. And in the morning when the rubble clears... She realizes that that, more than anything else, makes her want to fight Hitler. (laughs) 
And so as she's recruited, she's native-born French, she's married to an Italian, but she spent 25 years in London raising an English daughter. Uh, she, she joins up too. Again, and she's about to become a grandmother. The, the women who were recruited for this work were ordinary women. They weren't the most athletic and they weren't the most brilliant. They were just ordinary women who have this one unique skill. Total native habituated French. That, that's an amazing story. And, and I, I hope that she avenged her cat. I believe she did. <laughs> All right. So, so how did the uh, women that you profiled in the book, how did they help organize the underground resistance in Nazi-occupied France? What, what did that look like? So this is important. This is one of the things. It's not just that women were needed because of French speaking. It turns out, and the Allies realized this pretty early on, they were better at a lot of skills required for recruiting an underground army than men were. Um, in an occupied country, you're not getting the world's greatest soldiers. You're getting kind of actually some of the world's worst soldiers. The world's greatest soldiers are in a Nazi prison already, or they are doing slave labor for Hitler in his, uh, you know, in, in war factories, building airplanes and bombers, or they're working on the Atlantic Wall trying to defend France against the ultimate incoming invasion. I'm sorry, there's a jet going by. Okay, there it goes. Um, so, yeah, recruiting yeah. an underground army is is hard work because you're not getting wonderful soldiers. You're getting kind of bad soldiers. You're getting teenage boys and old farmers. The good soldiers are gone. They're in jail. They're working slave labor for Hitler in factories or on the Atlantic Wall. So it's very hard to get this disaffected and marginal population to volunteer because they're taking care of their mothers and the family farm. And basically, they're the only men left in France. Women were really good at recruiting, convincing these men to go leave their families, leave the farm, live in the hills, live badly and get trained like soldiers with no guarantee that it was going to work. Women were excellent listeners and caretakers. That was a role they'd fulfilled since birth. And so they had a real kind of native skill in recruitment of an underground army. It was something they did sort of better than men who had to learn this on the ground. And also, importantly, because there were so few men in France after the invasion, the men who got parachuted in were young fighting fit soldiers and they stood out like a sore thumb because there were so few left. A woman in France on a bicycle was a pretty ordinary sight. And so they had kind of better cover just by virtue of being women. So they would listen to this marginal population. They would listen to their concerns and they would organize them to either leave for the hills and get trained in combat sort of guerrilla training, or they would use them to, um, as kind of liaison agents, help get tickets to cross a border or clothing for a newly arrived agent who might need them, train tickets, um, feed new agents. There were all kinds of roles people filled in the resistance. And the women on the ground were part of every step, teaching kids how to fight, teaching, uh, helping organize underground railroads. Um, so you write about how the resistance uh, kind of gets off to a slow start. They're kind of um, in in waiting mode for much of 1943. Um, 
uh, why was that? And then, you know, when, when they do finally kick off their activities, how extensive was their guerrilla warfare campaign? So it was extremely effective. Um, the French resistance has sort of been manipulated into a, a fairy tale, in part as a way of sort of covering up and papering over France's collaboration with Hitler. This notion that sort of everyone was in the French resistance. France resisted Hitler instead of France sent 75,000 of its own Jews to Auschwitz. Um, and on D-Day itself, the French resistance were key. So June 5th, 1944, a BBC code goes out all over France, basically saying, this is it. This is your moment. We've been training you for years. Tonight is the night we need you to step out. And that night, before the first Allied soldier lands, they make 950 cuts on roads and bridges and railways and telecoms cables, underground telegraphs, wires, and overhead uh, telephones. And in the morning, Normandy is completely isolated. By the time the boys hit the beaches, it was almost impossible for Hitler to get his backups, to get his tanks to Normandy. A trip that should have taken them three days took almost three weeks. And that was all the work of the French resistance, throwing trees down over roads and blowing up telephone wires, where it's a huge one, because it forced the Nazis to broadcast their movements via radio. And we had already decrypted Ultra, so we could anticipate where they would be. The, the French resistance were a key part of the Allied success. And you write a lot about, about Lisa's role on D-Day itself when that activation order goes out. Uh, what was she doing? Well, she was, in fact, in Paris on a recruitment trip, and she gets on her bicycle when she hears the alert. And she <laughs> bicycles for three days from Paris through all of Hitler's enemy formations back to the front lines. And she'll be there through the entire summer of 1944. We think of D-Day as a day. But in fact, it lasted through August. There was, it took a long time to get into France and through France. For the first six weeks, the Allies are basically just buttoned up on those beaches while Hitler's fighting back. And in that time, Lise is there in command, setting up you know, sorties and attacks and receiving uh, weapons from the, the Allies are still dumping containers full of material and guns to her. And she is coordinating all of that. Once General Patton breaks through, it goes really quite fast. Um, it, it took a long time. But when it does start moving, it moves so fast through France, that front line between the Allies and the Germans, no one even knows where it is. Like, no one in command can tell you where the front line is at any given moment. So what Lise would do is she would send runners up to the line, crossover, tell the allies where it is and where it's going, and then come back to her. And they would then be able to broadcast uh, to Britain, to London, to let people know where the front line has moved in any given day. And so she was providing critical intelligence as well, all through the summer of uh, 1944. And so th this is one of those activities that, you know, doesn't get the spotlight, but, but as a support activity, you need it. And it's key 
for any kind of offensive. Absolutely. I mean, and and General Eisenhower said that really the 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 harrying the Germans from the rear was a key part of the German collapse in France. It wasn't just that they were being attacked from the front, they were being attacked from behind. They were being attacked from the French. It validated Winston Churchill's belief that this could work. And uh, of course, the the Nazis and, and the Gestapo are aware of the resistance. Uh, how did authorities try to counteract uh, the network that these women were setting up? Well, I mean, so in October 1942, just as these women are arriving in France, Hitler sends out an order, uh, basically a war crimes order. He says to all of his generals and all of his majors and commanders, any war crimes you commit, I preemptively pardon you for them. And not only that, I'm giving you orders to basically just disappear anybody who's working with the resistance. You don't even have to write it down. You don't have to worry about documenting it. Torture them, make them go away. We never want to hear from them again. And so the word was out from the minute they started landing that if you were to find a spy or a saboteur, you didn't you weren't required to even pretend to extend any of the protections in the Geneva Conventions of a prisoner of war towards them. You could torture them and should. You should exact vengeance on them. And, um, you know, in light of that, um, you know, some of the women you profile do end up getting apprehended and arrested. It's true. So, yeah, uh, in fact, Odette and Andre will both get arrested and uh, Odette is very badly tortured um, to get information out of her, which she does not give. Neither does Andre, uh, but we don't know that she was tortured. But uh, Odette, when she's captured, does this interesting thing that I identify, again, as a sort of very female act. When she's captured, uh, she's captured with her commanding officer, a man named Peter Churchill. And she says to the Nazi who captures her, hang on, this is Winston Churchill's nephew. And I'm his wife. And they go in that moment from being someone who should be tortured and disappeared to high valuable, high valued diplomatic prisoners, VIPs. And that moment of sort of romantic lying about her situation saves her life, saves her commanding officer's life, saves her radio operator's life. And they torture her pretty consistently while she's in France because of it. Uh, she never gives up information. She never betrays other soldiers. And, um, and, and, and she is highly decorated at the end of the war. She survives for saving as many people as she did in that moment. Uh, what quick thinking. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I would have been that quick on the draw. <laughs> No, no, I'm not that quick on my feet. Well, 70 plus years on from World War II, um, <laughs> what can we say is the contribution of the D-Day girls to the Allied war effort? Gosh, I mean, they racked up a bunch of firsts. So they're the first sabotage agents, the first combat paratroopers. They're the first uh, women behind enemy lines. They're the first female soldiers. They're the first female spies uh, in a kind of government command structure, not sort of freelancing. And they were a key part of the win on D-Day. So in addition to all these firsts, they were part of the organization and, and the bones that made the D-Day landings a success. 
And they were also kind of the very first women to just write women into the history of war. War books are always about men. And these women put us back in the center of things where we've always been. It forces, they force us to cast a light uh, on rethinking how war has been misframed as an utterly male uh, endeavor. And, and this is important, again, today. It's one of the reasons our armed forces finally did integrate is that you know, we've had almost 20 years now of wars in traditional cultures, very traditional Islamic cultures. And we would send in these units, small units of guys with guns, teenage boys, to villages full of women and children. And it was a diplomatic disaster. We learned early on that that was just creating bigger problems. So early on, we started sending women with those units because they can talk to the women and children. And overwhelmingly in war, the men are gone fighting. The territory belongs to women and children. So we were sending women along and we were sending them and they were combat support. <laughs> Except they're there with guns, doing the same work as men are doing not just in harm's way, but fighting back. And the fact that we weren't calling them soldiers was kind of a distinction without a difference. That is why we had to organize, uh, you know, our rethink our armed services now to make our guys safer. And it's a lesson we had already learned in World War II and had forgotten because we had forgotten these women. So I think it makes us safer to rethink history with a fuller picture. Again, it's not because we're seeking participation trophies. It's because not telling the story means we make the same mistakes again. Very well said. And I, and I think that right there is uh, definitely why um, uh, the book that you wrote needed to be written. Um, so if somebody is interested in learning more about these brave women and want to pick up a copy of D-Day Girls, uh, where can they go? Well, I would encourage you to go to your independent bookstores, uh, support your local booksellers. They need us. It comes out in paperback on March 18th, and you can get them online anywhere books are sold. Or you can go to prh.com slash D-Day Girls, all one word. And you will be able to buy it there as well. All right. Well, Sarah Rose, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. I hope that you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah Rose about her book, D-Day Girls. Uh, as I usually do, I am going to uh, recommend if you like this book, you pick up a copy. And I have provided a link for you to uh, get a copy of her book. Uh, it's in the description of the episode in your podcast app. Um, this is a good opportunity to mention what that link is, I think. Um, I uh, recently have started linking to a website called IndieBound, uh, IndieBound Books, and that is a, a connection where you can find where a given book is uh, in your area. So you go to the book page and then you type in your zip code and it shows you where your local independent bookseller is. Um, I feel that's important to clarify because uh, right now with so many businesses shut down, it is um, definitely important that you support your local independent bookseller. Uh, they need your business more than ever. If you are interested in picking up a copy of D-Day Girls, I consider I ask you to consider uh, ordering a copy from your local um, independent bookseller.
And of course, the usual stuff. What did you think of this episode? If you would be so kind, subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, Please leave a review. Those things are incredibly helpful. Uh, And then if you want to connect with me on social media, I am on Twitter and Instagram, both at CMTUHistory. I would love to hear from you. And then, of course, if you want to check out the show notes to any of our episodes, those are available at www.cmtuhistory.com. All right, that's it from me. Uh, I look forward to talking to you all again very soon. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.